Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today is Tim Muirhead and Teresa Morrow. How are you both? I'm doing great. Teresa, you? Doing good. Thanks, Renee. We have a very special guest today. It's Gary Bourgeois. Let me give you a little quick bio. Very early in Gary's career, he mixed the Academy Award-winning film, The Man Who Skied Down Everest, and that happened before I was born. (laughs) By the time Gary was 24, he was touring with Bob Dylan and subsequently living in his house in Point Doom, which was also his first introduction to Southern California. Still, Gary had been mixing features in Toronto, but the lure of L.A. studios became too much. He went to Todd A.O., where he had the honor to mix on one of the best stages in L.A. and was promoted to vice president during his tenure there. In 2000, Gary moved to Sony Studios and opened the Lancaster and Quinn Theaters. Since 2009, Gary has been independent and continues to work all over town on all the systems. He was the first person to mix a feature on the Avid S6, which we just got at Dallas Audio Post. And Gary has the privilege to work with most of the best, including Adam McKay, Michael Bay, Trey Parker, Gary Marshall, and many, many more. How are you, Gary? I'm doing great. Thank you. What an introduction. I got to meet that guy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, Gary... Recently, you did a talk at the Mix Sound for Picture, and during the talk, you spoke about how you have a template and you feel like people don't ever share their templates and that you're open to sharing your template and that uh, you wish more people did. And when I heard you say that, I thought, well, let's get him on the podcast and let's go through his template. If he wants to share it, let's take advantage of this. So you were super great to agree to come on and you sent us a bunch of... uh, screenshots of your template that we are going to be posting on uh, the website for this episode. So anybody listening, you can go to tonebenderspodcast.com, go to the page for this episode, and there'll be a bunch of screen captures that you can follow along with what we're talking about here. So Gary, do you want to tell us how you came to this template and why you stick with it? Well, anybody's template is something that grows out of a long period of time and a lot of experience. And I think uh, most people covet their particular use of plugins or workflow to a great extent. Uh, You know, most everybody holds it dear to them and doesn't want anybody to to steal their valuable secrets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I actually was one of them for a very long time. And uh, I felt that the greater part of what I do, that the character of my sound lived in my template. I still believe to a great extent it does. On the other hand, I was mixing a picture in Bulgaria at one point. And then like a year later, I was getting questions from some guys in Israel. And um, they showed me a screenshot of what they were working on. And and I looked at it and I said, wait a minute, that's my template. And and they said, well, yeah, it is. Everybody uses your template here in, in Israel. Where did I, I said, where did you get that? And they said, well, we, we got it from the studio in Bulgaria. <laughs> And I just, all of a sudden I realized, well, okay, the the rabbit's out of the hat. But on the other hand, more importantly, what I did come to realize was that why shouldn't we share all the accumulated information that we've garnered over the years? And to tell you the truth, when you really think about it, that template or anybody's template is just a basic starting point. Why shouldn't I share my basic starting point with anybody who would like to use it? Because ultimately, as the program material goes on and as you're mixing or cutting or whatever you're doing, you're making it your own. So nobody is going to start out with my template and end up with what I do anyway. And they're going to end up with what they do. 
So why not share the information and how you work and why, et cetera, et cetera. And if it overall improves the quality of what's out there, so much the better. That was the thinking behind it. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> so so as our listeners can kind of get an overview of it, in a broad sense, how are you structuring things, both with regards to workflow and with regards to thought process? Uh, okay. Um, first of all, just the basic layout of the session for, for instance, just for dialogue and music, uh, which is mostly what I do. To me, it just uh, makes rational sense. The workflow of the plugins and how I use them, that's a different discussion altogether, which I will get into in some depth. But the layout for the dialogue, it, first of all, my very, very beginning template, if you go to the show and hide section and you open up all the stuff that I've hidden, it is a huge template that incorporates everything that you could think of. Foreign group walla, foreign verbs, foreign futzes, uh, dialogue, dialogue extra. I mean, ADR, the, the uh, radio mic, the boom mic, all that, it's all there. But when I pull my template up to use for a given show, I hide an awful lot so that it just basically becomes a template for that particular show. It might not have foreign dialogue, so why bother even looking at the foreign dialogue on the session? That sort of thing. One of the key things I do is I have my dialogue uh, one, dialogue two, dialogue three, dialogue four, blah, 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 tracks. Like, say there's a dozen. Hidden is a dialogue 1x and then a dialogue 2x under each track. That is not the x track. What that is, is a copy of the original dialogue track untreated. So mm -hmm. that if the editor on dialogue 1, if the editor has isotoped uh, that track, God bless them, um, <laughs> <laughs> then if it's overly done or whatever, I just simply unhide dialogue x1 and it's the original track is right there and I can do my own processing. So basically, I don't look at that. I hide it, but it's available to me right off the bat. It's the same with basically my ADR tracks. I have ADR 1 and then 1A, then 2, then 2A, etc. I don't show the secondary dialogue track if I know that for a fact that I'm going to use the radio mic recording of the ADR, which I find, generally speaking, has a tendency to match better the production, uh, but I want to be able to have the ability to unhide the B side of the ADR track so that if it's the boom that I would rather just like take a listen and see if it's better, it's there available for me. Um, but I don't like to stuff my whole session with everything under the sun and all the options in the world and then have to go hunting and pecking. I just have the tracks showing that are salient to my workflow at the time. That's the basic session. Um, I also have things like dialogue reassigns and music reassigns and stuff like that. You'll see it all on the template on the screenshot. The verbs I have uh, for the dialogue verbs, I always have the four dialogue verbs, dialogue one uh, verb, dialogue two verb, dialogue three verb, dialogue four verb. Um, and I have the same things with the music. My dialogue one verb is always a small, small room just for matching uh, uh, ADR to, uh, to production, et cetera. And then a, a medium room, then a, a really big, large room, and then an exterior slab. Those are the four basic ones that are always available. 
One of the biggest things I do is I always have all the sends on and always open at zero. And I have the returns closed. I know that most editors do not work that way. Most mixers actually do work that way. Um, when I get into a room, I will pick my like medium verb or a little bit of the the uh, the small room and a little bit of the medium room, and I do a little combination or not. But all of the stuff is affected that way. Uh, if I have a big church or whatever like that, I don't want to have to go and open up the verbs and sends and all that sort of stuff for every track that's available. All of them are open. I just open up the returns and there it is. So that's my philosophy on those. Same with the music. And uh, you'll also see, for instance, in the music, I will have a very small, fairly short reverb always playing uh, in, the, in the surrounds so that whatever the um, music is playing in 5.1 or 7.1, whatever it is, I've added a little bit of drape, just a little bit of drape uh, to taste that's always there. It's the same with the sub. I have a sub in my template there in the music section. And you'll see that it is always open and always playing very small amount. But I am feeding the sub all the time, very small amount. That sub is going through a uh, pro sub harmonic. And it's also being rolled off. If you look in the template, you can see it. Mm -hmm. It's rolled off at 90 uh, with a steep roll off at like 18 beat per octave. That roll-off at 90 is uh, saving the sub from working above 90 and masking uh, frequencies in the mains that usually go down to about 40. Um, the main speakers, left, center, right, will go fairly often flat down to 40, if not maybe lower. But I don't want the sub to go up uh, above 90. I want it rolled off, and I want only the sub material that I choose to be playing to play. And I have it at very, very low volume so that it's there and it's playing and so that the uh, deliverables guys at Netflix or HBO or whatever see that there's sub material there. Yes, <laughs> that's a thing. They will they will bust you on QC if there's nothing on the stinking point one. So it's barely there, but when I want more sub, I can increase it. But it's also not going to be masking up in the higher frequencies because I have it rolled off fairly severely. Just thought I'd throw that in. I, I love that plug. Yeah, that's I, a great plug. A friend of mine actually developed that. The guy by the name of Tom Marks, he's a, he's an audio genius. And uh, thankfully to, to him that it, it works great. And you can also choose the range in which you want to, in that plug-in, the range you want to work the sub between 30 and 50 or 40 and 60 or whatever. And you can choose. And depending on the type of sub material that you're working with, that really helps a whole lot too. Yeah, that's something I really love about that. Yeah. Do you find that that uh, works better on certain kinds of music, that added harmonic? Uh, absolutely. Uh, orchestra, score, orchestra. Uh, I find that the 30 to 50 range frequency, just a, a little bit of warmth way down there, really just makes the orchestra just feel like ballsy and wonderful. Uh, but if I'm doing like a... Um, uh, a hip hop, you know, film or whatever, where there's a lot of uh, rap or hip hop, um, I will up the uh, the range to maybe like between 50 and 80, um, because I really want to kick ass in that way in in that range, and I want definition because you don't want to start slurring uh, the kick in a, a rap or hip hop. So voila. 
Okay, so now I'm going to switch from the basic layout of the session, which if, if anybody you know bothers to look at the template, you'll see the, the basic layout there. But now I'd like to uh, just talk a little bit about the plugins. By the way, I'm not looking at those screenshots like somebody else is. So this is all from like up here in my head. Uh, usually I start out with um, a uh, FabFilter Pro-Q2 plug-in that's the first thing that that i'm using and my stack of plugins and you're talking dialogue chain here right I, i'm talking about dialogue tracks not the chain of oh, the tracks yes yeah we'll we'll define that please because i do have some stuff on my uh, chain also my reassign also um so i'm just starting out with the basic tracks uh individual tracks of dialogue and, and the first thing is the uh, FabFilter Pro-Q2. By the way, Pro-Q3 came out. Three today. just came out, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so I start out with the, the FabFilter. Um, you'll notice that on the FabFilter, I have a, a Q of about one, and I have a dip at probably about 850 hertz at, at about minus four. And each dialogue track has got that in it, and it's basically meant to take away the microphone. Now, some... Uh, Highly controversial. Yes, but uh, I find that it's it really takes the um, the curtain off the window, as they say. Got it. And and sometimes that that I'll bring that down to six hundred or four hundred. But most microphones, chefs especially, I'm I'm working around eight hundred and fifty, something like that. And I just take a little forty b of of that out, and I just find that it opens up the recording and it sounds more natural. And it doesn't sound like a microphone's there. Um, so that's why I do that. I also roll the dialogue off at around 100 uh, and also around uh, like between 9 and 10K. Um, and, and some people might go, what? Are you kidding? Uh, <laughs> bottom line is I don't want um, this effect. <sighs> you know, I want some sort of homogenous sort of sensibility to the top end. And if you work within that range, you'll get nice detailed top end whatnot without hiss and shit going on up there that I can't hear anyway after this many years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> so uh, that's the basic, you know, EQ thing. The next thing I think is probably a fab filter deesser. You got your uh, noise suppressor first. Okay, so I use the WNS, and if you look at the setting of the WNS, it's flat, and I don't use it unless I need it, okay? But if you look at the WNS that's in my dialogue reassign or dialogue chain, there is, in fact, a setting there that I use. It's not a heavy-duty setting. It's a mild setting, but I do take the very lowest uh, range down a whole lot, which is where the rumble exists in the dialogue tracks, and I try to clean that out as much as possible. And I also take the middle two channels down a little bit, once again, cleaning out some of the noise floor that's in the microphone range, okay? And I keep that in the dialogue uh, reassign, I keep that the same kind of like all the time. I don't mess with that. But if there's more WNS that's needed, on an individual track, that's when I apply the, those individual ones on the individual tracks. Before you move on from there, what is yep. your opinion of the WNS versus Cedar versus the Isotope Dialog? Uh, okay, uh, Isotope Dialog gets into artifacting a little too easily, and uh, but it's but it is also wonderful for when you have a high noise floor that you really don't want to take care of. That I get. Uh, by the way, I prefer not the Dialog, but I prefer the Spectral. 
uh, because I don't like the artifacting that I get with the dialogue version. Anyway, uh, the Cedars versus the WNS, pretty much the same. Um, the Cedars guys will, pr will probably hate me for saying this. I helped <laughs> them a lot with the development of the Cedars way back when it first started, the 1000 or whatever. And I think that their product is outstanding and wonderful. Um, a lot of the studios that I went to at different times always had the WNS and some did or didn't have the, the Cedars. And I just started using WNS because it was everywhere. And I didn't find that it was that much of a difference at all. And I used that WNS uh, in, the, in the reassign. It, it helps just give me an overall shape and keeps the noise floor down a little bit. It just sort of helps me out. Um, so then any more questions about the WNS? No, that's good. So now you're on to DSing. Yeah, DSing. Now this is a big one. The FabFilter DSer that I use, if you look at the thresholds and the, uh, the range, etc., it's not heavy. It's very light. And also never, ever use the look ahead feature. The look ahead feature will hear consonants that happen before the S and actually will start pulling before the S occurs. So you end up hearing pumping where you don't really want to hear that. So don't use the look ahead feature, um, first of all. Secondly, I use very light de-essing with the fab filter and I use it in an interesting range. Um, it's sort of like a very middle range. I, I don't go too high and I use it very lightly and I'll tell you why. Because if you look once again at the dialogue reassigned chain, I have another de-esser in there and it's called a Yosis. Yeser, and it's very, very high quality, and it's a beautiful deesser, right? And it is in a wider range than the FabFilter deesser, and it's giving another layer of deessing that's once again quite mild. If you use any given deesser and try and get all the deessing done with one deesser only, you're going to hear it grabbing, you're going to hear it pulling, you're going to hear it pumping. If you use two DSers and you do what I call load sharing, um, you will find that it's really smooth and you don't hear that uh, effect of the pumping and whatnot. And your S's are just really smooth and you're getting all of them, but not one particular thing is working hard. Okay. Now, that philosophy, that same philosophy, appears in my next plugin, which would be probably the multiband compressor. That's right. Now, wait, 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 before we move on from DSing, <laughs> because DSing is so deep. The thing is, is if you do it that way, it, it really does make it very smooth without a lot of, you know, artifacting, pumping and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, a few episodes back, we talked to, you know, a bunch of uh, dialogue editors and, you know, most of those folks were very into the concept of manually clip gaining S's back which is extremely labor intensive, but it sounds really good. It, it does, and I do that a lot. If my DSers are not catching the S, I will manually volume, you know, do a V cut and right where the S is. I do not use, I mean, clip gain as I use for overall pressure level of the dialogue tracks to get them in the pocket and the range that I want to work in, but I use a volume V cut on the S, um, fairly narrow, and yes, it, it works great. And I, I would rather do that than have a de-esser pump or overwork. Yeah. And I love the concept of load sharing on the S's because de-essing in particular, it's so tricky and it's so, uh, I, I guess, taste-based also. And it changes per person and sometimes per S in the given you know speech. Without a doubt. And not only that. I remember many, many years ago, I had some like mentors, older mixers at the time, they're probably my age, but I remember I would be concerned about an S 
And their reaction was, no, that, that's a clean S. <laughs> just, because yeah. it's, just because an S sticks out does not mean it needs de-Sing. I mean, if it's distorted or whatever, you have to work and you have to clean that up. But there's actually nothing wrong with a clean S. <laughs> I also find the more you start paying attention to it, the more you kind of become obsessed with those S's. Yes. That's all you hear. Absolutely. And, and, and a good clean S that, that has definition actually helps the clarity of, of, of a line. If you, if you over-DS uh, within a whole line, the whole line sounds dull if you over-DS it. You have to be a very cognizant of that. The DSer that I've started to really gravitate to lately, and it's, it's relatively new, is the isotope DSer. And the reason I really, really like it is because it's got a spectral tilt to it. Oh, yes. So you, so you can take the S's and make them brighter or duller. Um, based on you know what type of you know person you're dealing with, what type of sibilance you're dealing with, and I've really really enjoyed how that's been working. Isotope products. Uh, there's like four manufacturers or six maybe at, at most that make plugins. Out of a thousand, you, there's like four to six that are so consistently good and excellent at dealing with their their processing. And Isotope is right up there as one of the top two or three. I mean, they just do a great job. Yeah. Now. Even within that definition, you still have to be judicious. Yes. So anyway, I, I wanted to go to the multiband compressor. And what I was going to say, and I'll talk about how I use that, but the bottom line is it's the same idea where I have one of those in every dialogue track, and it's, a, it's sort of a mild uh, amount of compression, and mostly in the middle band where, the, you know, where you're going to get the, the strength, the power. But I also, once again, do that load sharing thing where in my dialogue reassign, I have another multi-brand and it's doing the same sort of thing. Only once again, I don't have one particular compressor grabbing something and yanking it down and just like you, you hear it pump. Instead of which I've got two compressors doing this and basically you don't hear the compression working and yet it's holding it within certain boundaries and certain limits. I guess that's the rationale for having a multi-band compressor. Uh, and I'm kind of curious, like you obviously haven't always used them. At what point did you start deciding to use multiband compression in the dialogue? When they first came available, because I think to a certain extent, um, there's a few of us that were like, the reason why you have certain tools is because we were demanding that they design them and we were beta testers and we were experimenting with the different manufacturers. And that was even before plugins came along. Um, when, um, Oh God, years ago, there was a, uh, I think there was a company called Symmetrics. Mm -hmm. They actually built a, um, a compressor for me that was a, a variable Q and variable frequency compressor. And like nobody had done that before because everybody just used single compression that just took the whole track. And I had a particular actress that I had been doing three or four pictures with that had a voice that was just like cut, just banging right into my head. <laughs> What I was, I mean, I was doing everything I could, but I wanted, I didn't want to just yank her, all her whole track up and down with a compressor. And I just needed a certain frequency range where it was just killing me that I needed that compressed. And I talked to the people at Symmetrics, they built me one of these. And then when plugins came along and the ability to be able to have multiband compression came along, I mean, you just like helped them develop that and ask for certain variables and they developed them and like you use them like crazy. So I don't do much compression in the lower range. I don't do much compression in the upper range. I do some compression in the mid range where 
uh, most of the pressure level comes from, and that's where I want to sit on stuff or hold on to it, you know? Um, I, I don't know if you have more to say about that compressor. It's a great but one. I, <laughs> uh, my question is about the order of having the de-esser ahead of the compressor. You know, what I have found, and I, I might be completely wrong about this because I'm very non-technical, <laughs> but, um, you know, in the analog days, the order of events, because you were uh, using a patch bay and going into one, one piece of outboard equipment, then the next, and then the next, the order of events was like ultimately important. And uh, you certainly used to, well, put it this way. Uh, the reason I would to do the EQ and then the DSer was that I wanted to take care of stuff before it got to the compressor. I wanted the compressor working less, as little as possible. I mean, that's the, the order of events is based on old analog patch bays and, and, and having to go into one thing and out and into the next thing. And to a great extent now, with plugins, that that really isn't necessarily the case at all. These things are all working individually, and it's a cumulative effect of what you're getting. But I still uh, put things in in an order of events that makes sense to me. <laughs> right. I guess if your compressor is exacerbating your S's, then maybe your settings are wrong. Yeah, uh, it definitely could be. Uh, or if your um, de-esser isn't working all that well and you're only using one, maybe you should consider the load sharing using two. And then your compressor is working a whole lot less. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And then also, if you look at the three-band compressor, I, I use three bands. You can use, on a multi-band compressor, you can make as many bands as you want, pretty much. But I use basic three. And basically, in the upper range, where your your S's would really sort of splatter or spike, my threshold on that band is uh, less than the middle band, if you look closely. Okay, yeah. I'm doing this all from, you know, memory. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last thing that might be the... Um, the transient SPL transient designer is that right? Correct. Woo! Is that uh, the plugin alliance D verb? Well, yeah, that that's the same thing. The SPL transient designer, um, and that I use for basically off mic. Uh, the boom didn't uh, swing around fast enough, or whatever, off mic stuff or overly reverberant stuff. There are many other D verb uh, isotope D verb. There's uh, unveil there's a bunch of stuff that does the same sort of thing in different ways i find uh that 50 percent of the time those are better and 50 percent they're worse yeah. but i know that the spl dverb is really extremely consistent and i can just literally dial it in as the line goes and dial it out uh, rather than affecting the whole line, and I can actually ride it as the line goes goes through, and I can deverb to my heart's content, and it's it works every time the same way, and I really find it invaluable. Uh, there's so little time consumption using that because it's simply just you know taking that one control and you know varying it. I think that compared to the graphic interface of Unveil is like the complete opposite. Well, and also the time it takes to find the combination that's right. And also you can't vary all those things throughout the line. And quite often, with especially if it's a boom operator, they go off mic. They go on mic sometimes, they go off mic. You have to be able to track it. And I found that the SPL D-verb, you can just literally, just with that one knob, track it and it works great. Yeah, beautifully simple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
That's me. Beautifully simple. <laughs> yeah. So that's the chain on the on those DX tracks. Yeah. So if you were to go back 10, 15 years, what would be different? Well, uh, 15 years ago, you didn't have the same plugins. But here's the thing is that part of the reason why I started the idea of doing the load sharing and whatnot was because the very first plugins were shit. Um, they, I mean, like, sorry, but they were. Um, they were really artifacty. They were inconsistent, et cetera, et cetera. And you could really hear them work. And especially if you had come from the world of analog where you were using really high-end outboard uh, gear. And so when I was using outboard, I used to use a Fullmost uh, DSer, which was really cool. And there were, I mean, there were a number of things. Uh, the younger DSer was like really great. But I mean, there were a lot of work, but ultimately, when I started using plugins, you could really hear them working. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to be using Avid, if I'm going to be using Pro Tools, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to be using this stuff anyway, and I'm being forced to use it at the time, then how do how do I make it work best? Uh, how do I wait make it work for me? How do I get, how do I get the quality that I'm used to? Um, I don't think I should degrade the quality of what I do just because uh, you're forced to use a different set of tools. And I, I was looking for the answer. I found that if I did the load sharing thing, it diminished the the bad artifacts of using those those new uh, plugins. And as I continued, I just found that the the quality of the plugins, the the uh, uh, variables that that you were given to work with, all improved a great deal. But I just found that that meant I could back off on the load sharing, the degree that I use stuff but I was still getting really great quality that way. And I wasn't overtaxing any one particular plugin. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I remember, yeah, when we were on our compressor exclusively <laughs> and we were stacking those up one, you know, different attack times and stuff just so that they're not, just what you're saying, they weren't working as hard. But it's an interesting thing to consider that there must have been a period in late 20th century filmmaking or something, when those plugins started to get used, where people were going all in, and do you think that there was a period where sound got worse before it got better again? No, yo, without a doubt. Uh, without a doubt. Yeah, you ask most any mixers, yes, without a doubt. The, the quality of the verbs, I used a TCM 6000 for a long time. It was like a $13,000 outboard piece. And I had four of them, for God's sakes. Now, I was at Sony, so it was like, you know. But at the same time, the quality of, of the verbs on those things were just outstanding. And the, what's, what's great is, like, there was a big delineation between the, the rooms and verbs. The rooms did not have a verb algorithm in them on the TC. The rooms were rooms. And they weren't IR. They were completely shapeable on, in every aspect to your heart's content. And so I had, you know, user files that I had spent days just taking a voiceover, for instance, and also a snare drum slap and whatnot. And I just worked days and days and days of building all different size rooms for different things, whatnot. And so I could call them up on that TC and it was so natural sounding. And here's the other thing too, is that I rarely ever use one program for a room. I usually use at least two. And if I have a medium room, it's made up of maybe a small room, a very slight, very slight slap in a medium room. So it's like it's not just one program. It's it's a much more complex signal. And you're so you're hearing an effect and it's like, wow, that's beautiful. It sounds like a real room. But you're not saying, oh, yeah, that sounds like the right room. 
if uh, you're going to hear that only if you're using a, a single program, but if you're using multiple programs and layering, then all of a sudden it's just like, wow, it really feels like you're there. And it doesn't sound like one given room, you know? Yeah, so yeah. that's really important. I, that's, I, I do that with both music and uh, dialogue rooms, etc. Here's a big, if I may, while I'm on that subject of the verbs, um, basically, if you look at the verbs, I've included snapshots of the verbs. If you if you look at them, I, I roll off all my verbs at 3K. I also roll them off at 100. I don't want woo happening in the verb. Yeah, I want yeah. a clean low end, right? More importantly, I want, especially if it, the longer the verb goes, but no matter what, I don't want this top end sizzle thing happening with the verbs unless I choose to. Then I yeah, can that shimmer, right? Yeah, I don't want the shimmer. I want just the, the high quality, warm, rich verb. And then and, and over 3K, you just start to hear this top end sizzly shit. So I roll everything off at 3K. Now, if, if I want more shimmer or whatever, I can just open that up in a second. But eight times out of 10, maybe 9.3 times out of 10, I like that warmth and richness of getting that. And you can even take a cheap program which sometimes you want a cheap program because you want to hear that sort of slappy verb, like 1957 Fender twin reverb sound or whatever. Um, and you want that cheap sound or whatever. But if you roll it off at 3K, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's the effect. Oh, that sounds really nice. But if you just didn't have that top end roll off, it'd be like, oh, Jesus, can you do something with that? R rolling that stuff off like that. Knowing that that's the case, with like, for instance, the dialogue, I'm in a barn or something like that, and I've got a nice room, and I ro I've rolled it off at 3K, you got to make sure that your effects mixer knows that whatever room that he's putting on the footsteps and the props and all that sort of stuff in the room are rolled off at 3K also. There has to be a meeting of the minds here, because if, if everything he's doing, his footsteps were not, are, are sizzling up there, and your dialogue sounds rich and warm and nice, it's like, hello, we're not in the same room anymore, you know? Um, <laughs> I got another question about that. Yeah. Uh, sort of about that idea of um, that the settings you're using on dialogue need to be the same as the settings you're using on effects Foley. Is that always the case, or no. does sometimes I've actually the, uh, was re was referring directly to the effect that you're putting on it, the the room, and I hmm. think they have to be in the, the the same room. You have to quickly. I mean, we're working together, whatever you're with the effects mixer. Uh, and I'll just lean over and go, I'm rolling off at 3K or I'm ro I'm rolling off all the dialogue in this scene because it was so pissy. I'm rolling it off at 8.7. I'm just letting you know that so that you can actually help me out by opening up the, the wind in the background or the air in the background. L open mm -hmm. it up so that we still have the top end in the scene, but it's not coming from the shitty production. Got it. Yeah. You have to work together and you have to have that sort of shorthand that's really, you know, back and forth and easy, you know? I wonder if you find sometimes the uh, reverb reacting with dialogue, like a certain setting, is not going to sound like it's in the same place if you have used the same setting on effects because of the, the nature of the dynamics. Basically what you're saying, you're talking about is the, the percussive nature of the effect versus the, the dialogue. And if the dialogue is rich and warm, and they're, they're, not, they're not speaking in a staccato manner, it will uh, play differently. I mean, you have to just simply be aware of that and go, hello, 
you know, with your, your effects mixer and the dialogue mixer have to work together. You know, yeah. if you're doing both, then you can address that yourself, obviously, because you hear it. But and, and, you know, if you're working with a great effects mixer, he's hearing it anyway or she's hearing it. Uh, my last uh, couple of years, I've had a wonderful woman. She's uh, Alex Furman. She was just mm -hmm. a great effects mixer. And, um, and we had we ended up like after six or seven months, we had a great shorthand right off the bat. It was really, really good. But you have to have that uh, ease of working together. It's it, basically it's a dance. Let's face it. We always call it call it the mixers dance, you know. So as you get into the relationship between voice and music, um, how do you, what's your headspace, what's your mentality, what are, the, what are the overriding principles as you balance music against voice? Depends on who's paying me. <laughs> <laughs> if, if the composer gives me a little bit under the side, I'll just raise the music a little. No, I'm just joking. Um, but uh, you know what? The, uh, first of all, there's a lot less of an issue or a problem if the composer is a really good composer and he's written around the dialogue. Hello. Um, that's, that happens about 63% of the time. Um, the other 40 or, uh, the other 37% of the time, um, the, uh, if, they, if they write through the dialogue, if they didn't listen to the dialogue when they were composing, et cetera, et cetera, it happens. Um, then, then your work's cut out for you, and you have to search for, you know, if you've got stems, then you can maybe bring the brass down or the or the the big snare drum or whatever it is that's encroaching on the dialogue. You have that ability to manipulate the stems within the the cue itself. Um, but uh, if it's written beautifully and it's written around the dialogue, uh, then you can play it up more. I mean. Um, there's been some huge composers that I that I worked with that wrote around everything. And it just meant that I could play the music up and you could hear the themes and, and you could hear the, the subtleties. And uh, it was just beautiful, you know. And uh, and when somebody just overcrowds, it's like you got to just start yanking stuff. And it's like it, it behooves you to have a, a spotting session with the effects people, the mixer the the composer all together so that everybody's on the same page. It doesn't happen enough. It doesn't happen because of schedules. It doesn't be, happen because of sometimes just pure pride. Oh, I don't want to have that guy in the room with me, blah, blah, blah. Um, and sometimes it happen, doesn't happen simply because people are unaware that it should. But it should. Without a doubt, it should. Because if there's an agreement that this is an effects scene and the and the the composer will back off. Then it's like, well, then we'll hear both of them. Um, but if you have like raging music and a, and a gun battle at the same time, it's like, hello, we have to have a discussion here as to who's going to suffer. Because that's what happens is somebody's going to have to suffer. And in, in a best case scenario, when you get when you get tracks in from a composer, what state are they in? Do you get a, a stack of 5-1 stems, stereo stems? How does it generally look when you get it in? Yes. Okay. <laughs> It depends on the format. Uh, if I'm doing broadcast, high-end broadcast, I get 5.1 stems um, with some stereo uh, accent tracks, etc. If uh, if it's a medium or lower budget broadcast, I'll just get stereo stems. But because I've gotten stems, I can at least place them around the room so that there's movement and there's feeling of broadness and bigness. If you, I, I certainly don't get stereo stems and leave them left and right. That's just no, I don't do that. I'll, I'll pan some 
basic tracks in a little bit. I'll do percussive stuff out a little further, maybe back about a third or something like that. I'll, I'll do some synth uh, sweeteners and stuff in the surrounds. And, and uh, you know, so they all blend, but the, the room feels like there's movement and whatnot. That's all really good. You also have to constantly be aware that if there's too much movement, you can't be distracting from the storytelling. You can't be distracting from what's going on. If two people are sitting there looking at each other, goo-goo-eyed, and say, I love you, you have beautiful music playing. If one of the tracks is playing in the surround and takes you out of the, the, the scene, it might be very nice sonically, but the bottom line is you failed because you're not helping the storytelling. You've got to always, always, always talk about the arc of the story and how you support that. This is the most important thing. And at this point, there's an awful lot of people that mix with a mouse and don't mix with faders and will just put something in at a certain level and go, that's nice backgrounds or, or strings or whatever. And they're not writing it as it's happening all the time. You have to be writing all of these elements all the time, constantly. You have to be addressing this shit constantly. And and you can never just put something in and let it sit there and, and play. And you, the whole idea is you're here to help support the story. And we are what's called the silent craft. People are supposed to be unaware of the manipulation that's going on here. And what we have to do is help the storytelling for the director, for the writer, for the actors, we have to support them in every way, the whole, you know, the, the shooting of it. You go into a montage. You have to know the first shot of a montage. You got to know where you come up and through the line. You have to know, generally speaking, when a, a line of dialogue ends, you know where the line of dialogue ends. So you've got to come up through the back end of that line. You can't wait for the line to finish and then raise the music. Everybody will hear that. And it's like you're tipping your hand big time. You should be feeling that coming up through the back end of the line where necessary. That sort of thing. I love that. And, uh, you know, in a broad sense, are, are you doing your rides per track or are you trying to run VCAs? You, are you doing an overall shape or are you really getting in there on your first pass or on your initial passes? Well, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on how much time you have. It sure. depends on how many tracks you have. It depends on how busy the sequence is. Blah, blah, blah. It depends on if you're alone or with the, with the client. I mean, all those things play a part of it. Ultimately, there's a wonderful flow that can be had given the ultimate experience. When I do a really big feature film, you know, the, the effects mixer and I, in the first morning, what we'll do is we'll have what we call our strafing run. <laughs> you know what strafing is, right? Yeah. You'll have a strafing run where we just open up the faders. And generally speaking, the my effects mixer will just bring his master down 3dB and we'll just sit back and we'll just watch the reel or watch like 20 minutes or whatever it is and just see like what's there, you know, what what's obvious to us, like where you push, where you pull, all that sort of stuff. What's there? Then we start and have a pass where we start to work. And generally speaking, depending on if there's just me by myself working or if I'm working with another person, that changes the order of events. But generally speaking, I will work on the dialogue with the music playing at a mediocre level without doing a whole lot of movement, but I'll just really work on the dialogue. 
And the effects mixer will probably be working on backgrounds so that he's staying out of my way, but at the same time hearing how much he has to encroach or has to add to get rid of some of the noise in my tracks, blah, blah, blah. That's where we're sort of working together, just backgrounds and dialogue, right? Um, and after like a few scenes, I'll go back and I'll just do a quick pass of playing the music, right? Then it's like, go nuts, buddy. And so it's like he's doing the hard effects and the foley and filling in and whatnot. And after that, uh, you know, two or three scenes or whatever will say, let's look at this and we'll make like little adjustments and I'll refine the music or refine the dialogue and he'll refine those fully footsteps that are sticking out and where you're wondering what the fuck was that? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, that that's how you work together. And, you know, if you're working on a huge picture, you usually have time to do the dialogue pre-dubbing and stuff like that. And then the, the effects mixer might be pre-dubbing backgrounds and effects on his own, but he'll be using either the temp track dialogue or he's following me by a day or two and he's using my dialogue pre-dub to work against so that he knows what the clean dialogue sounds like, you know, or she. So, I mean, it depends on if whether you're doing broadcast, you've got two days, broadcast doing, you've got three days, broadcast you do, you got five days, or if you're doing a low budget feature or if you're doing a huge budget feature, the workflow completely changes depending on the schedule and the budget. Yeah. And uh, I guess in the in that space, as you get 5.1 tracks in, what is your preference with regards to manipulating where those things sit in space? Do you like to break them into I individual tracks or do you use like Spanner or something to, to manipulate the spread? Uh, they are usually broken down into individual tracks, although I have a sub, you know, like I have individual subs for each 5.1 stem for instance, yeah. but they're broken into separate. And I will sometimes, depending on what the stem is made up of, it's, if it's percussive, I will change either the balance or the imaging slightly. Uh, what you look for is consistency in the track layout. If the music editor gives you consistency in the track layout, then you can have these, you know, like the percussion tracks or the guitar tracks or the string tracks preset and you can write them like both ways the whole program for the whole session and know that they're going to play properly if people start intermingling and laying the track layout for the music is the changes and stuff like that then it's really eating up a lot of time bottom line is you have to readdress those those imaging qualities each time right so that's really important to have the consistency in the track layout yeah in the same question if you're dealing at 5.1's uh, mix and you're getting 5.1 stems, like, oh, well and good, you've got to honor that fact that some scoring mixer somewhere did a really good job of giving you a nice space. Um, if, and if you get into 7.1, it's the same thing. But if you get into Dolby Atmos, um, usually you, we will get a 7.1 stem. And then you start to choose elements that you want in a sort of like rainbow arc around the room in a wide queue and basically start to pick certain tracks that you want to play in different places, different spaces in the room. You want to have your basic track in sort of a rainbow. You want to have some synths and whatnot in different places so that you get a sense of movement and, and that sort of thing. And once again, really helpful if there's consistency in the track layout so that those things keep coming up where you plan to have them. And when you're talking about a sense of movement, um... Are, are you actually taking, say, synth tracks and panning them around with the Atmos elements, or are you just kind of putting them in a place and letting them sit? Um, I know it all depends, but, you know. In a, it really yeah. depends. I, but generally speaking, if I know that there's sweetener accent synth tracks that really are cool and playing back, and they meld it and work with the main track, but it gives a sense of movement in the room, 
then they're, they're fine to leave, let's sit back there. But if they start to like uh, take you out of the scene or whatever, yeah. I'll minimize the track or bring them forward a bit, whatever is necessary. Yeah. I heard you say uh, in one of your talks that each project has its own workflow. And I know that having a template is kind of a way of uh, being prepared in advance. Um, how do you stay flexible, uh, be ready for those changing workflows without having to reinvent the wheel every single time? Like, how often do you update your template and stuff like that? I update the template fairly regularly every two or three shows or even every show by the by real three or four, you've changed some things. Uh, but then what you're doing basically is updating the template for that particular show because it's got a name, you know, that it's got that show name and, you know, you've updated your template so that that it's reflective of that show. My general template, which is kind of what you've been seeing, has so much in the show and hide. It includes everything you could possibly think of. Four different FUTs tracks and each FUTs track is slightly different with different amounts of distortion, blah, blah, blah. There's a PA track there's you know there's so many things that are incorporated in that basic template that when i start a show and i see what tracks they brought me in and there's a whole lot of tracks that i don't have to use or address i simply hide them it's rather than building a, a new template for every show i've got one basic template that basically covers everything you could think of right that, mm -hmm. that was a work of art <laughs> yeah that was a lot of work, you know? And there's all these efficiencies built into it, right? Like you've got all your presets already set. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even for instance, like I've got separate group verbs. Uh, you know, I've got dialogue verbs, but I've got separate group verbs. And then if I have foreign group, I've got foreign group verbs. If I've got futzes and PAs that are foreign, that's separate from the futz and PA that's English, you know? I mean, all of that is in the temp dub. It took a long time to build that, you know? But at the same time, it's like every show that comes in now, I just pull up my template, pull in the, the audio, uh, put it in its associated uh, groupings and tracks and whatnot, and hide the rest. And it's like, generally speaking, really fast and easy to do. And hopefully never hit unhide all. Um, you know what? I'll tell you what. You're right. On the other hand, if you can't find something... Hitting on hide all will reveal. <laughs> um, here's the other thing, too, is that when I'm working and I have, you know, you have uh, memory locations, right? Yeah. Well, I make sure that I have memory locations that aren't obviously aren't tied to a time code, but just a memory location that says GB dialogue. That's me, G GB. GB dialogue, GB music, GB you know, whatever the various layouts are. Um, of course, that's separate from the layouts on the S6. That's that's a separate thing. But in my memory locations, I have those. Like I have a memory location for the start mark and a location memory location for the tail pop, you know, that sort of thing. But my memory location, you know, point one point. I, I mean, I just hit point one point. And my screen comes out with the modulation, the size I like the size of the uh, track that I like. In other words, the, the picture of the, on the screen is exactly how I like to work and how, the speed at which I like to have it, everything else. So that when somebody else takes over my session and is doing something editorial-wise, or even I'm doing something, right? Rather than going trying to find like the view that I like to have, I just hit point one point and boom, there it is, okay? Well, on that same uh, list of memory locations, point two point, 
is my music, right? And I always have a separate screen for my music. I have a, one screen for my dialogue and group and verbs and stuff like that. I have a second screen for music, right? And it's right beside my dialogue screen, okay? And ultimately, those screens are traveling at exactly the same speed. Those screens are, the modulations are exactly the same size. The size of the tracks are the same. So that basically when I'm looking at the dialogue out of the corner of my eye, I see the music coming in at exactly the same, you know, they're both coming across the same way. And when I'm working the, the music around the dialogue, I'm looking at the music, but I'm seeing the dialogue out of the corner of my eye in the other screen and I can work around the dialogue or whatnot. Anybody who has all the dialogue and music on one screen, you're either looking at the dialogue or you're scrolling down and you're looking at the music. You're not working around the dialogue as well as you could be as, uh, by a long shot. Or you don't, or if you're looking at the dialogue, you didn't even open up the music faders because you had no idea the music was playing. <laughs> you know, so, so it's like, I don't always necessarily have a, two separate machines. I'll have one separate machine, but I'll have the music come up on another screen so that it's right beside me, dialogue and music. And I see the two of them going across beside me all the time. That's like really important. And then that's when having that point one point or point two point is really critical. Because whenever you go in and do something or you're looking for something, as soon as you hit that point one point, both of those machines, once again, are just going through all the time at the same rate. So for people that are not totally familiar with Pro Tools keystrokes, when we're talking point one point and point two point, those are the keystrokes on the keypad that call up the various memory locations. That's right. That's and right. Pro Tools, you can call up memory locations, and memory locations do more than move your cursor around. They will actually put up uh, uh, window sets and screen sets and track heights and and your entire setup. Yeah, you, you just you just choose the thing. You're like uh, you're, you're talking about the track heights and the speed and all that sort of stuff. You choose that stuff, and you don't tie it into a time code location. Yeah, time code location. Yeah. Then then you'll bounce like 14 minutes away from where you. <laughs> Like, you don't want to do that. God damn it. Does anybody <laughs> use the mix window in Pro Tools? I do. Uh, yeah. yeah? I mean, certainly the, the people that work around me elbow me and uh, move me out of the way when I need help. Uh, and they, they pull up the mix window. Um, the mix techs that I work with who are outstanding. Um, thank God that they're around. They know more than I do. Um, they probably mix better than I do most of the time these days, but they they are invaluable and they will quite often like come in because I'll like throw up my hand and like, what the hell's happening? Um, they'll come in and they'll they'll pull up the mix window quite often to find out what's going on, et cetera. Um, I rarely use it. I use the edit window like 99.9% .9 of the time. Renee, when do you use it? Well, you know, I don't, I don't have an S6 in front of me. I've got a C24 in front of me. Um, and so, you know, typically I've got my edit window on my left and my mix window on my right. And I just use that uh, mostly just to, you know, look at some meters and, and to see what plugins are on what tracks. And, and, uh, and I use that window also just to have my right window to house my plugin windows. Yeah. 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 I mean, I see my, even on the edit window, I see my plugins. I, and I, I hate to tell you this. I know that everybody just goes, oh yeah, yeah. But I don't use meters. I don't look at meters. Yeah. Well, when you're in a calibrated environment and nothing is ever changing as far as your speaker loudness, you don't really have to, um, you know, if it sounds good, it's good. The only, the only thing that we, I, I personally use meters for is the LKFS. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, I can just listen to a program for a while and know where I have to adjust the monitor level on broadcast. It's either 79 or 82 or whatever, but uh, generally speaking, that's just by my ear and my pre the pressure level that I work on. And I've been doing this 
a very, very, very long <laughs> enough time. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing too, is if, if you'll notice on my template, the last three tracks is a master uh, dialogue, a master group, and a master music. And I have those there specifically so that if my LKFS is down to, and I got to bring it up to, that the only things that I have to change is I just have to raise those like 2 dB or whatever yeah. it is, and then just like write it, whoop, and then re do the reading on the LKFS again and go, yep, we nailed it. Thank you very much. You know. Yep. You don't use bus compression like on the... I do. Yeah. I use, uh, well, I use bus limiting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like it's point five, point 0.5, you know, it's like minor, but you want to stay within a certain parameter, yeah. Does all of your compression, as, as far as dialogue is concerned, live on the tracks itself, or do you run those through a, a separate compressor on a, on a chain as well? Well, the, the compressor is on the individual tracks and also my dialogue reassign. I see. So when you're saying a dialogue reassign, you're talking about a, a chain that all the dialogue tracks run through? Yes, that's correct. Then if you also notice, that reminds me, because I use the dialogue chain and it's it's going center channel mono, you know, and I lay out my dialogue stem, LCR, and then C and C, which is would be production and ADR. So the production and ADR are separate and the 5.0 is for group and verbs. But generally speaking, I like will take the dialogue, it goes up the center. Now, here's the thing is, if you look at my template, the last dialogue track is called 5.0, and it's an empty track, but it's a 5.0 track, okay? And so if I have a piece of dialogue that I want to pan, I just simply drag and drop, and it's on my 5.0 dialogue track, and I can pan it. Oh, that's cool. I was going to ask you sort of where you fall on panning dialogue. Um, a lot of people are really bugged by dialogue moving all over the screen. Well, uh, here's my answer. Uh, Gen I'd say 97.8% of the time it's dead up the middle. But if if somebody is cued to look over to the left and somebody calls from another room, I'll definitely put it over on the left or yeah. the right, whatever it is. On, but never all the way. I always take it to the where the speakers are, but not off the screen. Anytime anybody pans anything off the screen, you better have a really great purpose for taking people out of the film. Even if you pan a truck by when it hits the edge of the screen, you stop your pan there and you fade out. But you don't take it off the screen and continue panning because now you've you've actually literally taken the audience's head and moved them off the screen because they're following the truck now. And they've you're now out of the film. What you want to do is make sure your pans go to the edge and then you fade away. Okay? So with dialogue, I I never fully pan all the way to the right. I pan, you know, like what do they call it's like 83 percent or something like that whatever mm -hmm. you know and that gets the idea across but it doesn't take people out of the room that's a really big thing now here's another thing i did a film i don't know three or four years ago uh called draft day it was a kevin costner film it was, it was for ivan reitman it was about nfl football team it, it was really a good film um in that film there were panels you go from a normal, you know, full-size screen to like three panels, and they would split out, and there would be one person's office, another person walking around, and another person in the bathroom, whatever. Okay. Sometimes, when I when that happened and they were speaking, I would pan, but I was very, very judicious about how 
quickly I would pan and to what extent. So I got a, a sense of it's over there. So people would literally follow the dialogue and who's speaking, right? Sometimes, you're not going to believe this, but in the film they had somebody get up and walk across the middle panel and end up in the left side in the left panel and while the person in the middle is talking, right? So I would actually pan and follow that person, but it was done so smoothly and with the other person still in the middle or whatever, that it never took you out. You were All you were doing was following the character. Now, I spent three days before I started even doing dialogue pre-dubs, knowing that I was going to be panning a lot of the dialogue because of the panel movement, I spent three days just isotoping so that the room wasn't moving, but the voice was moving. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's like that's really important and key because if you felt the room move, that would really take you out. You know what I'm saying? And especially we had, uh, the, my effects mixer was wonderful. She's a great mixer, uh, Anna Belmer. And uh, and I, she and I have mixed back and forth together throughout our careers. It's been a great experience. And But she would mix the backgrounds for each panel and keep them on the panel depending on if, if they moved or not, you know? So it, it was very tricky to say the least, but I actually heard that in some big theaters it worked. I've heard it in small rooms it worked, and I heard it on headphones and it worked. But it was <laughs> a tremendous amount of energy that it took to make that that happened. Yeah, I'm dealing with a film right now where it's a uh, it's a kiteboarding film and they're doing the exact same thing. I got three panels that are showing up or sometimes I'll have three panels that'll that'll slide in and out and then they'll they'll cut to a, a, a top and bottom split screen and then they'll cut to a single screen. And it's like literally the same trick, but they're just repeating it and I'm just I'm having to figure out where to put the different effects. Um and it's tricky as hell. Your your moves almost have to be like even if it's a sharp cut, your moves can't uh, respect the sharp cut as much as you have to make it. It's just, gotta flow, yeah. It's gotta flow. It's you. You're gotta. It's like cutting a dance. You're still dancing, but you're cutting to different angles. But you're still dancing, and the audio has to dance rather than cut sharp. The note you were making earlier about how you don't want to pan a truck all the way off the screen, even when it comes off the screen. When you're in that mentality, what do you do with with Atmos? Um, it, it, Atmos is a different is a somewhat different application. And if the the truck is going off the screen and it's close up, that's a different application. It it goes off the screen. You you have the ability to and it should go off the screen. You right. Know? But most of the time it's like in the background there's two people talking, pickup truck in the background goes off. It's like, no, I don't want to hear it go off the screen. I want to take it away. All right. So it's obviously it's it's issue based. You know, it, it depends on each each uh, circumstance. Um, but here's one thing overall as a reaction to me for Atmos is that I've heard a lot of great Atmos mixes. Um, uh, Iron Man, or what was it, two or three, two? Um, it was like unbelievably good Atmos mix. Um, there's a lot of people that are doing up mixes now or they're mixing 7.1 and then just doing an up, up mix. Uh, native Atmos mix is, is really preferred. It's really great. I'm finding that people are being very tasteful. It's just almost like usually when there's a new thing comes out, there's a whole lot of people that use it in a distasteful way. It takes a while to groom some taste. Whereas in Atmos, I found that a lot of the big pictures that came out in Atmos were being used. Uh, they were being mixed by really experienced mixers and they've been done really tastefully. And I don't know 
if that's the best use for Atmos. If you're going to use Atmos, I think that part of the exhibition is to be a little more dramatic. That whole tasteful thing works great. And you're sitting in immersed and all that sort of stuff. But when something literally flies over you, whatnot, just point source it and just rip it right over and make everybody go, wah, because that's what it's meant to do, in my opinion. And it doesn't have to be all the time by a long shot, but I just find that people are being uh, a little held back and a little, a little uh, overly tasteful, which is what you would look for any other time. Is that a function of the mixers or the directors? Um, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. It's, it, it depends on who, who's in the room at the time and who's in control and who's doing what. And, uh, you know, quite often it's the mixers and quite often it's the directors. It's, it's a shared, always it's a shared environment, you know? Yeah. I, and I think guys do wonderful, incredible work and it's so tasteful and it's so good. And I just think to myself every once in a while, geez, I really wish that had really ripped over my head or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's all I wish. But you know what? Uh, I go on Sundays to the Academy theater, the motion picture Academy. They have an unbelievable theater here on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. And on Sundays, they play new releases. And it is a place where most of the Academy members judge. They have a reference point in that room. It's a, such a big room, and it's like the best sound system. It's a great presentation. And so we go and like listen to new films that have come out, whatnot. And I use that room as a reference point. I know how good a mix is, because it's playing as good as they actually made it um, in the mix stage. Sometimes it sounds even better, because it's such a great system. So I judge in that room very often, and I go and see a lot of films specifically because I want to hear in that room back to back uh, what the mix was like, because I, I vote, you know, for the Academy Awards. And I got to tell you, quite honestly, A Star is Born was an unbelievable mix. Yeah. <laughs> it was because they, they really sang, um, that helped a whole lot. But just overall, generally, the quality of the sound and the the use of the Atmos, the way they used it in so many in different environments and whatnot, they worked their butts off. They did an unbelievable job. I was knocked out. If you can see that in a really good Atmos presentation, it's well worth it. Yeah. Um, something that's, that's coming up a little bit in my mind uh, with regards to the template is how the template and, and just the rest of it interacts with the outboard hardware. So you're on an S6 uh, in the room that, that I'm looking at right now. Um, your software is going to interact with your with your hardware, with your speaker controllers, your monitors, and 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 you know in a lot of film mixing, there's you know compression EQ that happens outboard as well. In your world, how do those things interact? Uh, how much does the uh, the control surfaces you're working with or the mixes you're working with affect what's going on in your template? Um, first of all, any of the compression or anything like that is, is being controlled by me. It's not, there's no system outboard stuff happening. But uh, I, I must say that, um, like when I set up the S6, it's to a great extent representing what I'm looking at on the Pro Tools sessions. And so, for instance, on the S6, you've got layouts, right? So my first, like layout number one is my dialogue. Layout number two would be group because that's the order of events in my session anyway, you know. Layout number three would be um, backgrounds, and then four would be hard effects, number five would be music, you know, because that's on a separate screen, as I said, you know. Um, so whenever I hit one of those, what happens is that layout comes up on the individual faders, okay? 
the way I have my S6 and mostly any S6 that I go to work on um, is that all the uh, faders that are going to manipulate the individual tracks are to the left of the uh, master module. And there's like maybe, I don't know, what's that? Three, eight, two, three. Uh, there's like 36 or sometimes on a bigger board, there's like 48 of those modules. Then there's the master section. And then to the right, to the right of the master section, I'll have either another set of eight or 16, okay? Now, when I hit layout and I hit dialogue, for instance, the first set of eight on the right side of the master section are my VCAs, dialogue, ADR, group, music, VCAs, okay? Then followed by my dialogue verb, one, two, three, four, music verb, one, two, three, four, et cetera, right? So any layout that I hit, whether it's dialogue or music, those faders to the right of the master module are always going to be exactly the same. So that's my VCAs and my verbs. I don't even have to think about them. My hand automatically goes to those as as a master module, basically, <clears throat> my VCAs, et cetera, my verbs. But <clears throat> when I, I lay out for dialogue on the individual faders, they come up in order of the session. So I have my dialogue, my ADR, my group, my verbs, my, not verbs, the um, VCAs, et cetera. Um, so they always come up the same. Now, when I hit my music layout, it'll still be exactly the same on those faders to the right of the module, but the music verbs come up first. But but they're all the same and they're all there, right? But the only thing that really changes is the individual faders sections, and that relates to the, the session itself. That's basic organization as far as my mental flow goes, is that I'm always available to change anything on my VCAs, et cetera, because they're always up and they're always there. But the layout that I've chosen shows up in the individual faders. That's cool. Yeah, that's really good to know. Yeah. And then I find also that, for instance, like if I'm mixing by myself on a big effects picture or whatever, that sort of organization is huge. It really helps a lot, first of all. Secondly, what I always insist uh, or like ask for or suggest uh, to the sound designer or sound effects editor is that whenever whatever comes in like in backgrounds if there are 5.0 backgrounds and you've got like you know six 5.0 backgrounds etc and they're on different vcas and all that sort of stuff when i hit my layouts there they are etc but always add two more 5.0 empty uh, tracks that are laid out on the board etc etc same with the, uh, the the effects, the hard effects or the designs. You give me an extra two tracks. They're on VCAs, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, not, there's nothing there and they're not being used. But when somebody says, oh, we need a sweetener for that, put that on the spare tracks that are included in the whole setup. Oh, that's because cool. That way, I know that if something comes up on the screen that's in those tracks, it's new and it's a sweetener. It hasn't been addressed yet. But if, if it's buried and shared with stuff that's already been in there, I have no idea. And if I didn't address it and we do a playback and all of a sudden some door comes crashing through or whatever, it's like, what the hell is that? It's like, when did you put that in? Oh, I told you about, about you know, it's like, no, nah. if it's on those 
sweetener tracks, what I call the extra or sweetener tracks, then I know that it's new. I know I have to address it and it becomes part of the whole thing, but it's obvious like that it's there to be added. I love that. I love that aspect of um, being able to see what's new in the chronology of the mix. I color code new stuff when it comes in. Do you use color coding in your sessions? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, what's really interesting is like, you know, editors think differently than mixers. Yes. And I know that there are editors that also mix, but they also mix differently than mixers. Um, but here's the thing, and not, not one is necessarily right or wrong or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but they think differently. Everybody, you know, we, we think differently as craft people, right? Um, but for instance, like an editor will say, well, did you get that or whatever? And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Like, well, I put a marker there. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Editors actually look at markers. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm a mixer. I'm like flooded with this shit on the tracks. I'm looking at that. I'm not looking in the marker goddamn section, you know? And then when they then they pointed out like, oh yeah, okay. So like I'll go back and I'll catch up on all the markers or whatnot. But there are subtle things like that, you know, certain people think different ways, you know, and you have to have your bell rung every once in a while, you know. <laughs> Do you have any advice around um naming conventions for like files, folders, tracks, stuff like that that you found translates well between what the editors are going to send you and what you're importing into your sessions? Or maybe your assistant deals with that. Yeah, uh, they do. Um, also, for what it's worth, I've been, I've been mixing in Russia. Like three months ago, I did this big picture over in Moscow at Mosfilm. And I'm going to be going there and doing another big picture. It's a big action, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jackie Chan picture, and it's a big, big Dolby Atmos thing. And they have a beautiful, big lovely brand new Dolby Atmos room with a big S6 and they, they designed it all the way I like it and whatnot. God bless them. But one of the questions from the effects mixer there was, what, what are your naming conventions? What do you call stuff? And I'm so used to it just coming in, being called correctly that I, I stopped and I thought about it and I thought, geez, I don't know. Now for what it's worth, and you guys don't know this, but my daughter is one of the top sound people in, in LA. And um, and so I, I called up my daughter and I said, hey, can you send me what all the naming conventions are? And once she's like, what are you nuts? Um, but she took a, like a whole long time and then she sent the effects mixer over in Russia. All the all the naming conventions for all the, you know, the hard effects, the sound, you know, all the different things. And he was just like completely jazzed. He's like, oh, my God, I you know, this is great. I have no idea what she sent him, so I can't answer that question all that. <laughs> but one of the things that I did realize was that over there, when I was mixing there and the music came in, they called every cue something different, like different name. And, and so I had to have a meeting with the, the scoring mix down guy and the music editor and say, look, all the cues in real one are 1M1, 1M2, 1M3, 1M4. Real two is 2M1, 2M2, 2M3, 2M4. And then I know the order of where the cues should be and what reel they're in and what cue it is. And they're like, oh, we just call them names. And it's like, well, that's because you are in a room together and talking together. You are in consort with each other. I said, now you send it to me. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. I don't know the film as well as you do or where it should be or what it's referring to. Plus, 
In your case, it's in Cyrillic. I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> so I said, please just call Q. First music, Q is 1M1. The second one is 1M2, you know? And they're like, oh, like, okay. Um, so that was your question about naming conventions is actually quite important, especially in music. But generally speaking, there seems to be a fairly much of a consensus in North America that, you know, what, what stuff is called. So, you know, like that. The yeah. thing over there, too, was that the scoring mixers didn't realize that they should keep the same instruments on the same uh, stems. Ah. And so it was all over the place. I was working my butt off changing. I literally didn't change the panning. What I did was every cue, I actually had to look at the name of the, the uh, track and move it into its appropriate. I was wasting time moving stuff around all the time. So now they know. Yeah. Um. I had a question about the reverb that you use, the exponential audio reverb. Yep. Because I just had that recommended to me yesterday, and uh, I've heard it's fantastic. Do you want to talk about it a bit? Two surround Phoenix Verb or R2 surround, both really great. Uh, you got a lot of control, but the quality of the verbs themselves are really great. I also like the FabFilter Pro R. That's a really good one too. And I've I've sort of made some user presets for small rooms and whatnot for dialogue, but also the verb for music is really good on the uh, Pro R also. But the Fab Filter, no, the, um, sorry, the uh, Exponential Audio uh, R2 Surround, I love. I've never been a big fan of um, Lexicon, uh, unless you've got a really big room for a big orchestra. They've got some nice big rooms. Um, but I found, especially for dialogue, anything, uh, that's lexicon is always got a verb algorithm in it, and I hear it. And in a room, I don't want to hear verb; I want to hear the room. Uh, everybody nowadays are swears by oh, it's IR; it's got to be perfect, you know. Um, I hate IR. I hate all the verb. Um, they're probably going to send me a message once they hear this. Bottom <laughs> line is, first of all, it, it used to crash the system all the time. That was number one. Number two, it's. <laughs> And this will be the controversial thing of the whole podcast, but I've always said that it's for mixers that need pictures. If you have to look at a picture of something and say, that's the room I want, instead of saying, I want a medium-sized room and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, i pick a, a medium-sized room and I'll shape it, and I'll shape it to what I want it to be. The IRs don't have a whole lot of options available to you to shape the room. You have to pick the right picture. I don't want to sit here and look at pictures, first of all. Secondly, just because I'm in a room that looks like something, like a cave, well, that's a cave. And then if you go into your altiverb or an IR thing, you pull up cave and you're like, okay, well, that's what a cave sounds like. It's like, well, that's not necessarily what I want this cave to sound like. So I will pick a medium room, a really large room, and I'll put an exterior slap and I'll do a combination of those to make it sound like it's in a cave all around me. Really cool. And then when I go into a close-up, shot in the cave, I can diminish the large verb room, but keep the medium and the slap going so you still feel like you're in the cave, but yet you've shifted and you feel that shift. Whereas if you're using an IR-based uh, cave or whatever it is, and, and you just simply lower it or whatever, it's like, no, no, you haven't actually shifted the presence. You've just lowered the sound of the cave. I would much rather have a lot more control over all the various verbs that I have and be able to design them and make them sound like what I perceive them that it should sound like. I will get letters on this one, I know. I know. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point about kind of what you see versus what you're hearing. 
Do you like the kind of new plugins that have a lot of dynamic visual feedback? Generally speaking, um, my basic philosophy is don't ever look at equalizer when you're doing dialogue. Um, because if you look at it and see what you've had to do, you'll be in shock and you'll say, no, I have to modify it. Because who in their right mind would look at that and say, this is okay. So generally speaking, I have a third monitor that I have my plugins uh, displayed on the third monitor. Okay, I have uh, four dialogue EQ2s on the bottom, and those are my first four dialogue tracks. Um, I have them in, in as small a, a size as possible. They're just sitting at the bottom in case I need to look at them. Then I have the DSer, I have the WNS overall, I have uh, you know a number of things over there that I can just quickly out of the corner of my eye look at. I must say that I wish that the plugin manufacturers would give us the option of being able to size the displays however we want to size them because I don't necessarily need a large anything. I would like to have really small a bunch of things that are working out the corner of my eye that I can quickly look over and glance at if I need to and see, that would be nice. And also then you can always make larger whatever it is that you need to focus on if you want. But right now we don't have those options. They're, they're either small, medium and large and even the small is like the size of my Mac screen here, God's sake. Um, so I, I truly wish that if there's a manufacturer out there listening, <laughs> um, that I wish we had the option of being able to size the the images of the displays according to our needs and wants you know um, as far as looking at all the options and the all the feedback within them i find that quite often i will hide um, if it's possible a lot of the information that i don't need or want to see and just like pick on like one like the graphic representation or whatever like that um and and i do have it available to me on a one screen but it's usually off to the side where i really have to look over at it if i need it i was just gonna ask uh you said that your daughter's big in sound in la what, what, who's your daughter sarah bourgeois and what she where she work she works with uh, uh jeremy pearson and skip levsey a lot wow okay uh, there you go She's very strong. She's very structured. And I think she keeps those teams on their toes as much as uh, anybody could. Uh, she's in sound editorial with those guys. And she's the first assistant sort of sort of runs the show. That's, cool. nice. <laughs> That's awesome. And it was really great that I have that resource in my family. I can always call her up and, you know, ask her a question technical and she's got the answer, you know. So that's a, kind of a nice resource to have. Yeah. Probably works out as a good resource for her to have you too. Well, I don't know. I don't know. She has, she has to deal with my reputation. She's like, yeah, yeah, that's my dad. God damn it. You know? <laughs> kind of along the same lines, Gary. Um, you've been mixing since 1973. Is that right? No. No? Since 1969. 69? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, when I first started, I, I joined the uh, sound department at Crawley Films in Ottawa, and I had been a musician since I was a kid, and I was a studio drummer and whatnot. So the older men in the sound department there, we, we got this project with Janis Joplin, and they were like sort of the Frank Sinatra-esque era and, or Elvis Presley era. And they said, give it to the new kid because he knows that shit, you know? And uh, so I was privileged to work with the recordings that they had done on what they called the, uh, the Festival Express train. 
and then consequent, you know, album work and whatnot. And so I was getting my feet wet with some pretty big names very early on. I was, I was with Bob Dylan from the time I was like 24 years old and ended up, you know, being in charge of his stuff. And I was, I was lucky. I was trained really well. And I was also had tremendous mentors. And I think you have to be able to spot your mentors and know who they are and glean as much as you can from them. And even working with Dylan, some of the things he said really stuck with me because he never viewed recording as like he never overdubbed and he didn't like necessarily going into a real music studio all that much. Recording was a record of that time, that happening, that event at that time. That's how he viewed it. And you had to be so on your toes and see it coming when he was about to sing and whatnot. And you had to be ready because this was your only goddamn chance. And so it taught me a lot about that sensibility where capturing it and having it expressed is so much more important than ultimately all the quality in the world. And if if you didn't get it, it, it's a whole lot worse than having it be pristine. Oh, well, I wasn't ready yet because I wasn't the microphone wasn't quite right. It's like, well, you just missed out. And those are the sort of valuable lessons at a young age that that make an impact on you. It's like, yeah, I could clean that dialogue out a whole lot more, but that would be taking a lot of the life out. Let's just mm-hmm. get the background in that dialogue track a little lower, make it more pleasant, make sure that the guys, this the sense of timbre in the voice and whatnot is rich and nice. But let's make sure that the expression of the actor or the feeling of the actor is what really comes out that I really have to I have to basically be true to the essence of what what's been recorded, you know, and those are the sort of lessons from mentors that have gone on in my life that you take and you apply and you hope that somebody else will be cognizant of what you're doing and and why you're doing it. Because, yeah, it's really easy to clean things out to the point of pristineness. But you just took out the breaths. You took out the movement. You took out the footsteps. When somebody stomps off, it's like, I want to feel that that they're stomping off because they're angry. Uh, you know, it's like, it's easy to do things overboard. It's a lot more difficult to find the line that you got to hit to make it expressive. That's it. I love that. Thank you very much, Gary. This was awesome. Uh, It was great meeting you, and uh, I really appreciate it. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Gary. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Bye now. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Gary Bourgeois for jumping on with us today. Thanks to Stacey Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders. Go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. And you can support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. <laughs>